This is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen. Dark forces have been gathering on planes of existence that mirror our own version of reality. Those who stand in the light will be challenged, and those lucky introverts will have to step up and become leaders. Will you be ready when your time comes? Episode 21 In the Light of the Sunset Night 1. Officer Michael Hansen almost didn't see the red 98 Honda Civic sitting in the back of the parking lot of the small park alongside Chapman Road in North Richland Hills, Texas. Chapman Park housed five different baseball fields, a soccer field, a basketball court, and several playsets. The Callaway branch of the Trinity River split around both sides of the park, so a long creek split between the neighborhoods surrounding the event center. Spotting the vehicle, Mike turned on his patrol SUV's lights and pulled into the parking lot. Unit 203, Code 32. Vehicle is parked at the back of the parking lot of the Chapman Park Complex over here off Chapman Road. Time is 3.17 a.m. Vehicle appears to be a two-door red Honda Civic Coupe. 104203. Patty Gonzalez, at the helm back in dispatch, replied. License plate is Adam 236 Henry Tom 5. Red Honda Civic Coupe, license plate Adam 236 Henry Tom 5, no warrants outstanding. Vehicle is registered to 1 Melvin Baxter, DOB December 7, 1956. Unit 203, investigating 32. Time is 3.18 a.m. 10-4-203. Mike got out of his patrol car and withdrew his flashlight. He approached the red Honda Civic that was off. The window was down and the driver was sitting in the driver's seat. He had brown hair and steel blue eyes. He squinted into Mike's light, but Mike could see those eyes regardless. The man's face was pale. He didn't look 65 years old. He looked more like a man in his lower to mid-30s. Good morning, sir, Mike called. Just wanted to see why you were out here. Park hours are between 7 a.m. and 9 p.m. Evening, officer, the man said. He looked relaxed with a seat farther back than it could reasonably be to drive. I just used to live here for a while. Dad and I used to come out here on clear nights and talk about, like, the universe and stuff. Yeah, Mike got close enough to get a good whiff of the car. He didn't smell anything out of the ordinary. His flashlight didn't reveal anything on the passenger seat or floor. He craned back to check the back seat to see if there was anything strange back there. There wasn't. Have you anything to drink tonight, sir? Any pills or drugs of any sort? No, sir. I just wanted to come out here and kind of feel the night air, Melvin answered with a grin. Mike, seeing nothing strange other than a man probably deprived of sleep, relaxed a little. Well, I hate to cut your reminiscence short, but the park's closed now and we got rules to follow, so maybe move along and come back a little bit earlier next time. Sure thing, officer, said the man with a wave. I'll go ahead and get out of your hair now. Melvin moved his seat up and turned on his car. Unit 203 on 32, nothing strange. Told the man the park was closed and to vacate the premises, Mike said into the radio at his shoulder as he climbed back into the SUV. 10-4-203, Patty said. Mike watched Melvin drive his Civic to the mouth of the parking lot, wait for a slow-rolling car to pass, and then he turned onto the road without his blinker and drove the speed limit out of sight. Mike killed the engine on his SUV, sitting there for a few seconds as he surveyed the park and the headlights of his vehicle. He thought about what Melvin had said, felt the innocence of his memory, the intrigue of looking up to the night sky within this wide-open park around him. Mike got out and closed the driver's door quietly. He could hear the crickets and night bugs yammering from the creek nearby. Mike put his hands in his pockets, ignoring the dispatch radio as he walked through the dewy grass while looking up to the clear night sky overhead. Mike knew he was going to have to get back in his car here in a few minutes and leave, 
but something made him want to go further toward the creek nearby. It was almost like he wanted to feel a moment of seclusion by the creek, just to be able to see the stars more clearly. Of course, they were in the metroplex of DFW, so one could only see maybe 2% of the stars in the sky, but he just wanted a moment of that country enchantment one could only feel when they stood within a place where nature seemed to be reclaiming her hold upon the earth. She would always be here, always ready to take back what was rightfully hers, but for this life, Mike could only feel a ghostly connection to that which made him human. From the edge of the creek, he looked up to the few twinkling stars in the sky. A dog barked from the backyard across the way. That's when Officer Michael Hansen smelled it. The aroma was out of place, a mixture of perfume, blood, and feces. When Mike looked down, his eyes took a moment to adjust and process what he was seeing. Their expressions are what terrified him the most. He literally fell down in pure terror. At least twenty faces, all of them women, all of them dead, peered back at him from the placid creek water. Unit 203, he yelled into his shoulder. 27, I repeat, code 27, he swallowed. Multiple bodies, put out a 10C on Marvin, I mean Melvin Baxter, license plate Adam 236, Henry Tom 5, potentially dangerous and important individual. Mike returned his attention to the women floating in the creek in front of him, their eyes wide open in shocked terror. Patty replied, but he couldn't stop seeing their gaping, horrified expressions. 2. Alexander Kripke had felt a sense of dread on the way from the DFW International Airport and on the ride out to the park where the girls had been found. The moment the call came down the chain, she'd already had her go-bag in hand. It was nearing eleven in the morning, eight hours since Officer Michael Hansen radioed in his suspicious vehicle notification. He had put out a 10C known dangerous offender notice for not Marvin, but Melvin Baxter. A chill ran up Kripke's spine. The names were too familiar, and the crime was uncannily similar as well. Not Marvin, but Melvin. It couldn't be. Just couldn't be the Marvin Baxter. Marvin would be in his mid-fifties by now. The officer's description of the suspect was of a much younger person. It couldn't be Marvin Baxter. She must have repeated that phrase a dozen times in her head between the airport and the crime scene. Alex massaged her chin as the Uber driver pulled into the parking lot of Chapman Park that looked like a military checkpoint with how many Fort Worth PD vehicles were parked throughout the large, accommodating trio of lots. How could the sky be so insultingly blue and clear on a morning like this one? Alex got out of the vehicle, dusting the Cheeto crumbs of the Uber driver's car from her gray skirt. She gave the driver a half-hearted grin, thanked and tipped him, then walked through the field of police SUVs toward the crime scene. She wore a black pair of hybrid women's loafers that had a little tread on the bottoms so she wouldn't slip and fall in the dewy morning grass of the park. She doubted there would be any dew left with all the officers and data collections crew members coming and going from the scene. She had worked with the Fort Worth Police Department on numerous occasions so a few faces she recognized as she stepped into the grass and made her way through the crowds of officers. A few she didn't recognize. Alex caught the eye of a man with a young face who was wearing a pair of nice slacks, talking to several higher-ups. He had his tie loosened and had his blazer slung over one shoulder. She searched for Deputy Chief Frederick Green, but couldn't find him. Turning, Alex came face to face with the young man from before. He grinned and put out his hand. Hi, I'm Deputy Chief Jason Couchman. You looked like you were looking for Frederick Green, but he retired at the end of last summer. Twenty-six bodies had been laid out on the shore in two rows of thirteen. That's what caught Alex's attention as she looked past Jason Couchman to view them. Each was covered with a white sheet, but 26 rectangles represented 26 lives that had been cut short. 
Sorry. Alex pulled her long brown hair behind her ear as she met Couchman's blue-green eyes. He had already lowered his hand but accepted her handshake proposal as she awkwardly shook. I'm Agent Alexander Kripke. Yeah, Kirkland mentioned you'd probably be here. But next time give me a call. I'll have someone pick you up. You shouldn't have to take an Uber to a major crime scene. Jason stuffed his hands into his pockets. Thanks, but I wanted to get here as quickly as possible. Alexandra sighed as she took a step toward the two rows of bodies. What happened? So far, Jason took a step toward the shoreline of the creek. He raised his hand and pointed to where a trio of the crime scene crew were searching for anything else they could find within the thigh-deep runoff water from the creek. We've uncovered the 26 bodies from the report. All of the women are under the age of 20. Officer Michael Hansen said he had a short conversation with a Melvin Baxter before the guy basically vanished into thin air. Ready for the crazy part? Jesus Christ, we haven't even heard the crazy part yet, she said neutrally, hating the sense of familiarity she felt now. It was the same feeling of horrific anticipation she felt when reading about Marvin Baxter's heinous murders. All of these women disappeared between 1992 and 1995. It's like they were just frozen in time for the last 25 years. There is very little in the way of decomposition. The report said that all 26 of them suffered blunt force trauma to the head, and then their hearts were extracted via some kind of bladed device. We haven't found anything yet, have we? Like, their physical hearts? No, not one, answered Jason. None of them were murdered here, we know that much. But we also have a note. Really? Alex cocked her brow at Jason. Yeah, I found it a few hours ago while you were probably on the plane. Jason called one of the crime scene techs over and asked him to bring the letter. A few minutes later, the tech returned with a handwritten note in blue ink on notebook paper. It had been sealed in a clear plastic evidence envelope. Everyone handled it by the top corners of the bag to prevent any fingerprints from being smudged. Alex began to read the cursive handwriting that was all too familiar. Just seeing the loops of his L's, A's, and O's, there was no denying the owner of that handwriting. Their faces are so precious. The darkness inside calls and I am helpless but to answer. In this place, it's hard to scream. The time does not move here. The sky on the horizon is orange, and that is all they see before I do them the courtesy of ending their lives. They are so innocent, and that is the tragedy of all of this. Wish I could say it didn't have to be this way, but they were born to die. They are the rats the scientists run tests on. They are the monkeys that no one will miss after the experiment is over and has failed. I'm sorry parents have to mourn for their children, but I must keep the end at bay. I must prevent the darkness from taking over. Follow the light, so to speak. It is a small price to pay. Stop me. Come for me. End this nightmare for all of us. 426210 equals 5 plus 1 minus 10. Yours, Bax. Under the letters of the note and numbers of the math problem, a poorly drawn building had been scrawled. From the bottom of the building, numbers ranged from 1 to 10, like he was labeling the levels. Alex took a quick picture with her phone and gently gave the tech the envelope. She crossed her arms. It's Marvin Baxter. Jason Couchman bit his lip and nodded. I was really hoping that wouldn't be the case. Anything else out of the ordinary? Alex grabbed a rubber glove from one of the passing techs and pulled it over her right hand. Other than the note in the bodies, nothing else that wasn't mentioned in the report, said Couchman. Looking forward to the autopsy reports. Alex withdrew a handkerchief cloth from her inner breast pocket and held it to her nose as she bent over the first covered body. 
The sudden sense of dread from seeing the horrified young girl's expression rushed through Alex's chest as she peered at the slightly waterlogged corpse that was missing a massive chunk of body and organ from the upper left of her torso. The clean, circular cut around the arteries and veins told investigators that a physical device had been used to remove the hearts. She must have looked at the body for a full minute before lowering the sheet to cover the victim once more. No signs of sexual assault? Alex stood up. None that we can see. Jason took a deep breath and opened his mouth, but couldn't seem to formulate words. Alex glanced at him before moving on to the second body. We'll go for drinks in a bit, Couchman. Jason scoffed, even though they both knew that's what he was planning. He rubbed the back of his neck. You're good. I'm not sleeping with you, though, so don't get your hopes up, Alex said airily, uncaringly, as she surveyed the next young woman's body. Under the circumstances, I totally understand, Jason said. 3. So, Marvin Baxter, Couchman said from the bar next to Alex. She had been staring off into space for the last two minutes as they waited for their drinks. The bartender placed a glass of top-shelf whiskey in front of Jason and a mojito in front of Alex. I've read every single case file, note, complaint, query, seen every doctor's note on Marvin Baxter. I've read everything on the guy. I would never in a million years think he could murder dozens more women, Alex said. We're processing Officer Hansen's body cam footage right now, so we should have a face to go along with the suspect shortly. What do you make of that math problem? Alex asked. Are you sure it's a math problem? Couchman asked. If it is, it's just negative 16 equals negative 6. That's where my vast investigatory skills break down. The building? said Alex, staring off into space the way she did when she was deep in thought. Why number the floors? You don't think it's like a hit list, do you? I know it sounds strange, but disclosing who he plans to murder next isn't really his M.O., said Alex. Last time his journal was found and the statements pointed to where his victims had once lived. By the end of the journal, it seemed like Marvin was desperate to be caught. But this note is more like a continuity of that desperation. What do you think he meant by time doesn't move here? Couchman poured over the note as he sipped his whiskey. Maybe something to do with how one doesn't notice time when they're angry. Marvin isn't an angry killer, said Alex. It's one of the stranger parts about this serial murderer in particular, along with his lack of sexual interest in his victims. And yet they were all found naked. Seems like there's a little sexual something in here. Why not just extract their hearts and lay their clothes on for the most part? It's a ritual, said Alex. She spoke from far away, the way she did when she spent 95% of her thoughts thinking about the current subject of her case. He's always taken their clothes off, according to his notes and we found numerous articles of women's clothing in his basement on Swanson's Landing. I remember Swanson's Landing. It was demolished a few months back. Alex looked up at Couchman. Really? I never knew that. Yeah, it was in the Houston Chronicle, but like, nowhere else. Apparently the owner was one of the kids who found the secret basement. The whole house collapsed overnight, but he used the insurance money to have the place properly removed. They filled the basement with dirt, and now it's like it was never there. Hang on. Alex typed in the newspaper and Swanson's landing into her phone. The article from the Houston Chronicle popped up on her browser and she clicked it. Brows narrowed. Her brown eyes scanned through the article quickly. That's very peculiar because the same guy came down to the FBI headquarters for like five hours not long before this article was written to find out more about what happened when he was a kid. Carol Sheffield said he went down a rabbit hole like everyone else who wants to learn about Marvin Baxter. Probably learned everything and couldn't shake the heebie-jeebies in that house. Can you blame him? Couchman asked. Alex tapped her lips as she glanced through the article again. Looks like I have my first suspect. Suspect? Couchman cocked his brow. 
William Barry would be about the same age as the description of the mysterious driver Officer Hansen met. I can get you his forwarding address if you need, Couchman offered. Or you could just Uber out to wherever he landed on your own. Alex met Jason's charismatic smile. He was charming and she liked that he let her indulge in her work. She would let him help her, but she still couldn't let it spiral into anything further. She paid for their drinks, against Couchman's protest, and let him drive her back to the police station downtown. It took less than five minutes for him to track down William Barry's forwarding address, which happened to be a rental apartment in Bedford, Texas, about 15 minutes from the airport and 30 minutes away from downtown Fort Worth with afternoon traffic. The scariest part? His apartment was a 12-minute drive from Chapman Park. Should I send a few units with you? Jason asked. No, said Alex. I'll bring him in for formal questioning if I get a sense he's up to something, but this is strictly a courtesy call. Well, Alex, said Jason as he put out his hand once again. It was lovely meeting you, but I have to stay at the office. I'll have one of my guys take you out there if you don't mind. Of course, Jason, said Alex, shaking Deputy Chief Couchman's hand. I really appreciate your time this morning and afternoon. We'll chat again soon. Traffic on 820 East toward Dallas was awful at 3.15 in the afternoon. Couchman had given Officer Rodriguez the task of driving Alex wherever she needed until his shift end at 11 that night. They drove an unmarked Toyota Camry while Rodriguez wore civilian clothes. He was intuitive enough to know that she was busy in the back seat sifting through her notes for the majority of the drive, so he left the radio off and kept silent. Frustrated, she closed her folder with the case notes and zoned out while staring off into space beyond the window. As they sat through traffic in the sun, she slowly nodded off in the quiet comfort of the car. She saw twenty-six pale faces protruding from the water. They all looked terror-struck with their eyes wide and lips parted a little. The fear was in the eyes, but the lips were relaxed. They morphed the expression into that of one who has just realized, seconds before death, that they've made a grave error in judgment. Miss Kripke, said Rodriguez. Alex opened her eyes to find that the car had stopped in front of the apartment office. She took a deep breath, thanked Rodriguez, and told him to stay put. Getting out, she stuffed her case notes back into her shoulder bag and walked down the sidewalk to the office. A bald man and a woman with frizzy black hair stepped through the door and passed her on her way in. When she entered the glass front door, she saw a young, red-headed woman with black-rimmed glasses looking back at her from the other side of the desk. Can I help you? the woman asked. Yes, Alex produced her wallet and badge. I'm Agent Kripke and I'd like any information you might have about one William Barry of apartment 651. I'm going to stop by his place myself, but I wanted to know if you had any complaints or other information from your end. The woman turned to her computer and went to work. William Barry, 651, she said as she went. A file popped up and she scanned through it. Few noise complaints. Never late on the rent. No pets. I mean, was there anything specific you wanted to know? Not really, but if he was a problem tenant, then it would likely say on his file, Alex said. Pretty normal from what I can see. The noise complaint was for playing music too late at night, and that was like six months ago, she said. Do you have on file what kind of car he drives? Looks like, uh, she squinted at the screen. Blue Toyota Corolla 2011. Alex clicked her tongue, relieved. Great, I think that's about all I needed from here. I'm going to leave my card with you in case something comes up. Sounds good. Anyway, you can spill the juicy details. You'll hear about it soon, Alex said in her cold, mathematical way. Thank you for your time. Alex nodded and stepped out from the office. She looked at the different buildings of the complex and saw the six buildings across the parking lot and down the road a little. Waving at Rodriguez, she pointed across the street. He nodded and waved back, the thrumming voice of a sportscaster's baritone filling the vehicle. 
William's blue Corolla was sitting under the metal overhead that lined the majority of the parking spots. 651 was on the second floor. Alex climbed the stairs and rapped on the metal black painted door. A man with a thick beard answered. The smell of alcohol and cigarettes hit her. He didn't say anything but met her eyes, waiting for her to explain her business. William Barry? Alex asked. You look like FBI, he said. I am. My name is Agent Alexandra Kripke. I'd like to ask you a few questions if you don't mind. William glanced over his shoulder, took a deep breath, and pushed open the door. She followed him inside and closed the door behind her. He turned and grabbed the television remote where a strategy video game was displayed upon the screen to turn off the TV. There were at least 50 empty glass beer bottles that Alex could see covering the flat surfaces of the apartment. Next to him on the coffee table was a dwindling cigarette and a nearly empty box of beers. You probably know I visited the FBI building a few years ago. Didn't think you guys would come visit me, although I'm not necessarily surprised, William said as he sat down on the couch. He motioned for her to sit down on a comforter across from him. Alex sat on the rim of the comforter so she could get up and leave at a moment's notice. The place smelled too much like her father's house. It made her feel dirty. You said you're not surprised to see me. Not at all, although if I told you everything, literally everything, you'd probably have me locked up and committed. Want a beer? No, thank you, Alex said. Why don't you try me and see what I think? Okay, I figured out where Marvin Baxter's victims were. I saw them. It required me to go through a portal in the basement of the Swanson's Landing house where I found a bunch of creepy temples. I got chased by a giant monster that I think Marvin was sacrificing his victims' hearts to, and then it destroyed my house and flew off into space. Will held up a hand. If you think I'm crazy, I'm right there with you. Alex tongued the back of her front teeth irritatedly. Can I have you repeat but elaborate what you just told me for an audio recording? Sure, he said. I'll tell you everything, but it will literally make as much sense as the bullshit version I just told you. That's okay, just tell me what happened. Fifteen minutes later, the recorder app on her phone still rolling, William wrapped up his story. We jumped back in the car, drove as fast as we could, and... William shook his head. That was the last we saw of it. The big pharaoh monster thing just launched into space as far as I know. And your sisters can attest that all of this is true? Alex asked. William scoffed. I mean, I sincerely doubt they would willingly tell you that this event took place at all, but yes, they can definitely attest that what happened on the other side of that portal is exactly what happened. Why didn't you mention this to Carol? You could have emailed her. Nobody seemed at all interested in that case since it had been decades since anyone had heard from Marvin Baxter. Not to mention, I honestly didn't think anyone would believe me. If it hadn't happened to me, I wouldn't believe it myself. Where were you last night? Alex asked. Here, drunk as hell, Will said. Early this morning, around 3 a.m. Pass the F out. He motioned at the couch where there was still a blanket and pillow. And the last you heard of Marvin Baxter was this strange being talking about him in the third person. As far as I know, said Will. I guess the silver lining to all of this is that the asshole is dead now. Pretty certain of that. Wish I could say that was true, but it isn't, Alex said, watching Will's reaction. Will looked genuinely taken aback. I'm fairly certain that guy got crushed by the monster in that temple. I don't know anything other than what you told me about what happened from your story, said Alex. But whoever that thing crushed, it was not Marvin Baxter. Want to fill me in on what happened? Will asked. I'm sure you'll hear about it soon, but not only is he not dead, his victim count has risen to over 100. Alex stopped the audio recording and pulled up the picture of the note. This is the note he left for us at the crime scene this morning. She turned and placed her phone in front of William. He read the whole thing and shook his head after. I have no words. Any clue as to what this drawing means? 
the math problem? Alex asked. William scanned the picture on her phone again. Give me a little bit. Maybe I can figure it out. Don't try too hard, shrugged Alex. It's not very clear. Could also be so simple you're overthinking it, Will suggested. With nothing further to discuss, Alex decided it best to leave the stinky bachelor's apartment for fresher leads. Thank you for your official statement, Will. Alex sprung to her feet just as quickly as she had prepared from the moment she sat down. I know it was difficult for you and maybe complicated for you to process at the time, but stranger things have happened. I have never heard of anything stranger than the story I just told you, honest to God. Will got up and showed her to the door. Listen, Will, if anything else comes up, please call me at this number. She stepped out, turned, and gave him her card. Also, watch yourself. Whoever this person is, whether it's the actual Marvin Baxter or some copycat who thinks this is some sick joke, he might follow the forward address trail the way I did and find you. I don't know why he would do that, but you never know. I wouldn't mention your story to anyone else. Didn't plan on it, Will said. Have a good afternoon he called as she descended the steps for her ride across the street. She heard him close the door and was relieved to be away from the stench of the apartment. Alex got into the back seat of the car. Can you take me to my hotel room? I think I need to take a shower. Ten-four, boss, 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 lady, Rodriguez said. Alex smirked as Rodriguez pulled the car onto the road leading away from the apartment complex. Four. Alex felt significantly better after taking a shower. She spent a few hours going over her notes, spreading out the pictures of the dead girls upon the floor, but spent most of her time trying to analyze the drawing. Why would he count the floors to ten? She lay on her bed in the hotel gown with her glasses on the end of her nose as she read the letter again. It always came back to the math problem. She must have read the whole thing a hundred times. Are you sure it's a math problem? Couchman had asked. Four, two, six, two, ten equals five plus one minus ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, she said aloud. And then slowly, vocally, her mind began to do its work. Ten floors. It's not a math problem. It's a procedure. Her brown eyes were far apart, centered upon nothing as she saw through reality itself. Alex lowered her phone, her mouth open. He was telling her exactly how to find him. Had she cracked it? What a stupid game. Alex got up from her bed. She saw the twenty-six haunting dead faces gaping back at her in their surprised way. Oh, silly me. How could I have been so careless? Oh, how could I have let something so foolish lead to my end? Oh my good gosh, what got into me? They all told the same surprised, accidental story. I know where you are, Marvin, Alex said, seeing past the dead woman's faces, seeing past the twenty-six tragic realities that were cut short not ignoring them, no, but using their tragedy to piece together what was ultimately Baxter's greatest work of trickery. What a monster Marvin Baxter was, and how resourceful he had become in his old age. The greatest gift a serial killer can have is a secret place, a secret area to dispose of evidence, commit horrible acts of violence, and do whatever he must to fabricate a reason for doing what he secretly wanted to do all along. With William's story, it all made sense. Marvin had left that world behind for another. This one was more convenient. It wasn't in some basement hidden from the world in the middle of nowhere. The entrance to this secret hideout was within the city, closer to where the sheep drank from the river. And that place could be accessed from almost anywhere. Alex changed into her Tuesday clothes, a long black skirt, black stockings, and her black loafers. 
She tucked her sky-blue blouse into her skirt and put on her leather shoulder holster with her Glock 17 laced within its harness. Unbuttoning the small pistol, she withdrew it, checked to make sure it was loaded and ready, then returned to its position under her arm. She put on her black jacket and called Rodriguez. While she waited, she texted Couchman, telling him to search for Marvin's car's description in the parking garages around Fort Worth. She said they would probably find it rather quickly, with some attempt to hide the license plate so he could have enough time to get away. He replied, asking her if she wanted to fill him in on her leads and not keep him in the dark, but Alex only said, I'll bring you Marvin later tonight. 5. Rodriguez pulled the car up to the Tower Residential Condominiums off Throckmorton and 5th Street in Fort Worth. It was the fourth tallest building in the city, and it would do nicely for what Alex had in mind. She had heard about this phenomenon not long ago, but had just assumed it was a silly fad. Kids had come up with all kinds of urban legends and stupid internet challenges to prank each other. Who would have thought this one would turn out to be legitimate? Alex walked past the receptionist at the front desk of the building and pressed the up arrow next to the elevator door. She waited for what felt like a long time, and then the doors opened with a ding. The interior was luxurious with black leather padding on the walls while the floor was made to match the tiled lobby floor design. Alone, she stepped onto the elevator and pressed the button for the fourth floor. The doors slowly slid closed. The elevator ascended to the fourth floor. The doors dinged open to the nearly silent wraparound walkway that continued in both directions, but Alex pressed the button for the second floor instead of getting off. The doors closed and the hum of the elevator motor filled the quiet space. When the doors opened, Alex could hear the distant sound of a vacuum cleaner in motion. She pressed the button on the elevator door panel for the sixth floor. The doors closed and opened shortly after on the same familiar corridor. She pressed the button for the second floor again, waited, and once it opened, Alex pressed the button for the tenth floor. On the tenth floor, Alex saw the logo of the bar and grill on the wall to the left, and a sign saying that the gym and pool was to the right. She pressed the button for the fifth floor. The elevator doors closed, and Alex stared straight ahead as the elevator cabin rolled down to the fifth floor. It shuddered and seemed to take a long time to open. Alex could feel herself breathing rapidly, her hands clenched into fists in her jacket pockets. The doors dinged open to the same familiar lobby. Her heart hammered in her chest, eyes scanning the vacant study cafe and kitchen next to the elevators. She turned them down to the floor and held her attention there. Glancing at the panel, she tapped the button for the first floor. The doors began to close. For a moment, relief filled Alex's chest, but then a hand prevented the doors from closing. Instead, the doors opened wide as a woman with reddish-blonde hair wearing what appeared from Alex's peripheral vision to be a purple sweater and a long black dress stepped onto the elevator. Alex pressed the button for the first floor once more. The time it took for the elevator doors to close was maddening. Alex tongued the inside of her cheek as she closed her eyes. She heard the doors close and then felt the gears of the elevator begin to move. Do you know the best place to grab a burger in this town? The woman asked. Alex ignored her. I heard it's Hop Dotties. Have you been there? Alex kept her eyes closed and continued ignoring her. She could feel the elevator going up, not down. Ma'am, you're being very rude right now. I asked you a question, the woman said. Alex swallowed and kept her eyes down, almost closed. Ma'am? The woman moved, using the same hand she had used to prevent the doors from closing to wave in front of Alex's face. The woman scoffed and shook her head without saying anything else. This was the longest elevator ride of her life. Alex saw the faces of Marvin's victims as the elevator moved through the floors. After what felt like five minutes of standing in awkward, dead silence, the doors finally opened to the tenth floor once more. 
This time, all the lights were out. Where are you going? Alex heard the woman ask as she hurried out of the elevator. She jogged down the passage leading to the bar and grill of the condo building. The woman didn't follow her. She encountered no one else as she walked past one of the bars. An eerie thickness filled the air, like when the humidity on a wet day makes the air feel heavy, except this wasn't humidity, it was reality itself. Alex glanced at her smartwatch, only to find that it no longer functioned. Her phone was the same. She pushed through the door to the stairs. None of the lights in the buildings were on, so she entered the darkened stairwell. The only light she was allowed to see through the glass windows of the tower structure was a dim orange glow in the distance to the northeast that cast long shadows from the few buildings of Fort Worth. An endless perpetual silence made her descent down the steps a maddeningly noisy journey. Alex would try to take a deep breath but couldn't pull enough air into her lungs. She had to stop several times just to rest for a minute. Exiting the stairwell into the lobby that wasn't so well lit, Alex had to follow the wall through the pitch black to the glow from the exit. She walked through the entry vestibule and found herself on the streets of Fort Worth. Surprisingly, vehicles continued to move through the darkened streets, but they were strange. When Alex looked inside a large red SUV, she saw that no one was driving. It still rolled past her of its own accord. The physics behind Marvin's dark world contained objects and matter in motion from the real world. It was just the people and light that were missing. Based on that logic, the drivers of those cars also wouldn't be able to see her. She would need to be careful. Alex stood on the street corner and surveyed the sky. It was like a sunset 15 minutes before the sun went down completely, a little darker than that, but the stars in the sky opposite to the glow never materialized. The sky just grew increasingly darker leading away from the glow. So far as Alex could see in any direction, there were no pedestrians on their way to their destinations as was the case in the real world. She could see their cars speeding around the way they would in real life, which at least cut the edge of the place a little bit. Waiting until the street was clear, Alex jogged across and followed the sidewalk north along the road. Everything from the note made an eerie kind of sense. The orange glow on the horizon, the suffocatingly thick air that made existing in this place taxing. The few clocks she did see in the windows of antique stores or on the faces of buildings, none of them were moving. She made her way through the streets, avoiding the empty, dead traffic while following the glow. It was the only lead she had. How far was she expected to travel to find him? Her mind questioned whether she would have to travel across state lines, and if she did, why didn't she bring food and water? Just how prepared would one need to be in order to find where Marvin was hiding? But then why would Marvin choose Chapman Park of all places? That had to be where he was. It was the only location that made sense. Unfortunately, Chapman Park was easily a four-hour jog, not such a big deal for Marvin who had learned how to live in this world, but Alex was not of this place. Her insides rejected every prolonged moment on this side of reality. She considered going back to see if she could find a closer ten-floor building, but she didn't want to risk being caught between worlds by manipulating the unreliable method of entry. Not to mention, the guardian of the threshold, the woman Alex had ignored, was not one to be trifled with. Alex would need to be careful going back regardless. A vacant city bus rolled past her and pulled up to the bus stop ahead. That gave her an idea. There was a train route that went from the Fort Worth stockyards all the way to Grapevine. She had researched all the public transportation routes Marvin might be able to take in the DFW area after figuring out that he had only used his car to transport the bodies of his victims, and had likely had no further use for it. 
The train that followed the Cotton Belt path was the only quick public transit available as the Metroplex was so spread out that it would still take hours for the city bus to make its way to North Richland Hills, northeast of Fort Worth. Alex strolled by the Tarrant County Courthouse that was suspended in silent animation like the rest of the city. The movement of the vehicles through the city might have cut the creepy factor a little, except that there were still no lights other than the orange glow in the sky. The cars, trucks, and buses swam from the darkness like massive, deadly, driverless specters. She jogged across the street and slowed to a walk on the sidewalk of North Main Street. The Trinity River slowly crept under the bridge below, the glow in the sky reflecting off the placid water's surface. Alex looked behind her to see a scar of orange reflecting off the buildings of Fort Worth. The clock within the steeple of the courthouse was stuck at 3.15. Putting the downtown behind her, Alex jogged for the stockyards of Fort Worth that was several miles away from her position. It took about 15 minutes of walking through nameless, darkened city blocks for her to finally reach the stockyards. It was one of the few tourist attractions in the city of Fort Worth, and worth the visit and the barbecue if one had time. The Tex Rail train station was under the overhead of the inner stockyards. Alex waited on the platform for ten minutes until the train finally rolled into the station. The doors opened and Alex stepped inside. It idled there for a few minutes until the doors slid closed, plunging her into near-absolute darkness. The train slowly moved into motion from the direction it had arrived. She watched the dark city pass as the train circled to follow 121 north. It crossed the Trinity River several times as it moved straight northeast toward Grapevine and the orange glow that might have been the strangest aspect of the hidden world. Marvin was waiting for her. All this time, she thought she was hunting him, when in actuality it was Alex who was making her way deeper into the killer's trap. 6. The Texrail train glided to a halt at Smithfield and Mid-Cities Boulevard in North Richland Hills, a few blocks from Chapman Park. Alex thought the train station being so close to Marvin's staged crime scene was a little convenient until she saw the blood on the platform. Marvin must have known that anyone looking to follow him would come via the train. He had painted a path in red leading from the platform to the interior of the station. Alex crouched next to the walkway, ran her index finger along the concrete, and checked the results. The blood was still wet. In the real world, blood dried fairly quickly unless it was pooled in large volumes, especially outdoors. Here, because time altogether had ceased, even spread as thin as this layer was, the blood was still slick and slimy to the touch. Alex wiped her finger in the grass several times and got up. She drew the Glock from its holster and followed the path to the inner station. The inner lobby of the station was dark. Alex opened the door and stepped behind a pillar. Peering around the pillar, her eyes had adjusted to such dark color schemes over the last two hours that she could see the evenly square painted path leading all the way out of the glass front doors of the station. There was no movement. She could see words scrawled on the glass double doors on the opposite side of the station. They read, almost there, in the crimson blood of one of his victims. At least the blood trail ended there. Alex was relieved as she stepped out and followed the road between a fencing supply store and a church away from the train station. He was sick, setting up these messages like this, goading someone to work through his twisted logic. He had to be stopped. The deeper she delved into this world, the less likely, she knew, she would be able to take him alive. They were the only two living beings in this place. The only way back was through an elevator within a building with at least ten floors. The nearest building like that to her location might be in South Lake. This was all assuming she could take him alive. It was imperative that she avoid killing him. 
he had to answer to these crimes, even if he had figured out how to tap into alternate realities via strange urban legends. Finding out exactly how much Marvin Baxter knew and receiving a proper explanation was important for the families of the victims. But what if Marvin didn't want to be taken alive? He had given up the game, brought Alex all the way into his world, but for what purpose? Why not keep killing and become the most prolific serial killer of all time? Alex had to assume that the only reason he would do this is because he hoped someone would show up and stop him by force. She followed Smithfield Road to a stop sign where a man's body had been mounted. Alex recognized him as one of their agents that had gone missing, Ron Barksdale. He had been investigating a string of murders in Nashville. In 2006, eight girls who were sophomores in high school had gone missing after attending a party at a Hilton hotel. Their bodies were never found. If those girls' deaths were linked to Marvin Baxter, then his kill count continued to rise. Alex could picture it now, however, and it all seemed too easy. Marvin had looked like a cool guy, might have offered to buy the girls alcohol. Whatever had really happened, the girls had trusted him. And then, in casual conversation, all eight of the girls, tipsy from the beers, a large quantity of alcohol was found in the missing girls' hotel room originally. Marvin asked, Have you ever played the elevator game? Thinking it was just a silly sleepover story, the girls indulged, all eight of them. Once they found themselves on this side of reality, they were his to do with as he wished. That was the story Alex could deduce upon seeing one of her fellow FBI agents tied to a stop sign with his arm crutched upon an upended mailbox post so that his arm and hand pointed down the way. Over his head, the street sign, Chapman Road, ominously followed his direction. This didn't feel right. Not only had Marvin known the most likely method of transportation was the train, but he also knew she would come this way. Alex began to feel like a fly trapped in a web. She thought she was struggling toward freedom, but was actually pushing herself deeper. She was about to leave when she reached into Barksdale's pocket and found an old Sony Ericsson cell phone with his wallet. It was from about the same era when he disappeared. Alex opened it and of course remembered that electronics didn't work here. She dropped it into her inner breast pocket opposite to her Glock. With no other course of action, Alex followed the sidewalk path down the neighborhood road that felt half city, half country. There were a few houses with larger lots of land than would be divvied out with the city and building companies in the present, which meant the neighborhood was old. Occasionally a car would come rolling through the darkness, and Alex would hide behind a tree or a vehicle parked in the driveway. She didn't expect the drivers could actually see her, but wanted to prevent Marvin from knowing she had arrived. He might have known someone would show up eventually, but so far as Alex knew, he was none the wiser to her existence. She walked past Little Ranch Road and saw the familiar road where she had driven with the Uber driver from the opposite direction. Alex crouched behind the edge of the house on the corner under an adolescent tree in the yard. She looked across the creek that went under the road nearby. There were no signs of movement, but there were a number of things wrong in this version of Chapman Park. About half of the police cars that had been there earlier were still in the parking lot. The crime scene tape was still suspended around the creek where the bodies had been found. When Alex had surveyed the crime scene during the day, the recreational building in the center of the park, the top had been blue. So far, while everything was cast into darkness and a little more petrified from the lack of moving entropy in this place, the colors were more or less the same as from normal reality. Now, the rooftop of the center in the middle of Chapman Park was crimson red, and appeared slick and glossy in the orange sunset light. She must have stood there for five minutes before she crossed the bridge to the other side of the creek. Thankfully, there were so many police cars in the parking lot, she was able to stay low behind them as she moved past the tennis and basketball courts. 
the Chapman Park Center stood before her. The sidewalk leading up to it was covered in blood smears. There was still no sign of Baxter. Alex could hear her heart thumping in her chest as her eyes scanned the park all around her. Terror iced her insides as a patrol SUV she was crouching behind suddenly moved. She stepped out of the way so it didn't run over her toes through her shoes before hiding behind another vehicle. Within the dampened sound of this world, Alex heard the sudden motion of jogging footsteps. She drew her gun as she saw a teenage girl jog through the cars. She had brown hair and wore flip-flops, jean shorts, and an orange t-shirt that was torn at the sleeve. The girl fell to her knees on the grass in front of the park center. She heaved big gulps of air and then looked over her shoulder into the parking lot on the opposite side from where Alex was hiding. Metal scraping on metal screeched through the park, cutting through the air like fingers on a chalkboard. The girl was sobbing as she shook her head. Alex noticed now that she had deep cuts on her arms and legs that were weeping blood as she caught her breath. You ruined everything! A man yelled from where the scraping sound was getting louder. Look what you made me do! Alex had studied men's and women's profiles and statements over the course of her career. In almost every abusive relationship, boyfriend, husband, cheating spouse situation, in the man's case, it was always another person's fault as to why they were angry. It was always, look at who I've become due to X, whereas women are more apt to state X is happening to me because of something I've done. Women in abusive relationships are statistically more likely to take the burden of responsibility on themselves while men are more often to blame their mental condition on something else. Both viewpoints were equally detrimental to the overall relationship. If a man loses control over something or someone else, it means he has underlying issues that need to be worked out elsewhere, but a woman can stay in an abusive relationship for years longer than she should while thinking she is to blame for her partner's behavior. Part of it is a sort of Stockholm Syndrome that an abuser imbues into his victim or host. It only really works if a person's confidence has either been broken down to a dilapidated state, or if one has little confidence to begin with. To hear a man yell, look what you made me do, brought up dozens of psych classes from her youth and evaluations she'd had to read through over the years that crystallized this knowledge in her mind. The owner of that voice was dangerous, and he was in a place mentally that meant she needed to tread carefully. Alex readied the Glock low, resting the butt on her knee. When the figure entered her range of sight, slashing a sort of ancient combat claw weapon that was mounted to his knuckles across the vehicles, she moved. Stop right there, she ordered, legs spread with the pistol directed at Marvin Baxter. He wore a black bulletproof vest over his dark t-shirt that made him look like military with the long tan cargo pants and boots. This tall, commanding figure didn't look like the description Officer Hansen gave of Melvin that morning. What do we have here? Another visitor? He turned without faltering and darted for Alex. She made sure the Glock's nozzle was lined up with Marvin's chest. Snap. He must have known what she didn't because the gun didn't fire. It did nothing but give a dry click. Marvin tackled Alex to the asphalt parking lot. The two of them scraped on her back through the gravel. They came to a standstill and Alex could feel Marvin's weight on top of her. His strong fingers wrapped around her throat. She could feel the metal of the odd device on his hand pressing into her neck. Alex rolled, shoving him off with all of her strength into the big wheel of a crime scene van. She made to elbow him in the throat, but missed and hit his jaw instead. While trying to scramble out from between the vehicles, Marvin caught Alex's shoe, sending her tumbling over the curb into the grass onto her chest. Marvin threw her loafer shoe away. He looked maniacal and bug-eyed in the orange light beyond the playset behind her as he advanced. I was hoping they'd send more than just one agent at a time for me, but I guess a few people won't take me seriously then, 
Marvin was in the middle of speaking when it was as though he was hit by a sudden gust of strong wind that pushed him into the crime scene van from before. Alex pushed to her feet and prepared the heels of her palms for impact. She might only be a purple belt in jiu-jitsu, but she was going to beat the crap out of the guy. Before Alex could commit to this next course of action, the girl from before re-entered her field of view. She had her hand raised at Marvin and was breathing heavily, but her eyes looked black as the rest of the world behind her. The van door dented as Marvin was shoved with telekinetic energy from the girl into the door itself. You killed my sister, she spat and raised both hands. The blood veins in Marvin's face stood out as he tried to grapple his neck but couldn't. Alex's eyes darted from one to the other. She quickly stepped between the girl and Marvin, turning to the girl with the brown hair, black eyes, and raised hands. Marvin fell down to his knees, gasping for breath. If you kill him, he never gets to answer for all he's done. He murders women for a living and you give two craps about what he gets to say in court? The girl's black, exasperated eyes fell upon Alex. He's a pathetic monster that should be killed, but the world needs to know, Alex said. Marvin Baxter looked between Alex and the girl. Without warning, he shoved Alex forward and jogged down the avenue of grass toward the bridge at the end of the creek. A box truck was rolling lazily down the road, and Marvin looked like he was on a collision course with it. The girl took off after him, moving with a track runner's speed in pursuit. Alex hurried after, but she was missing one of her shoes. Her bare, stockinged foot crunched over sharp gravel and fallen acorns from the trees of the park. Alex watched the girl with the brown hair stop in the middle of the parking lot preceding the road and put her hands up. The truck suddenly swerved sharply around Marvin as if pushed by that heavy wind. But Alex knew it was not wind that had moved the vehicle. She didn't know what kind of powers this girl had, but she was definitely making things happen with her mind. However, upon successfully preventing Marvin from becoming a glorified pile of roadkill in a realm that it was likely no one would ever find, she dropped to her knees in the lot between the patrol cars. Marvin continued across the street without breaking stride. Hurrying to her side, Alex put her arm around the girl and helped her to her feet. Things don't work here the way they work back home, the girl said. You'll have to use your anger or you'll never catch him. What do you mean? Alex asked. But then she watched Marvin launch from the ground to the roof of the house across the street from the park. From there, he vanished into the trees. My name is Rebecca Perniak, the girl said. I go to Fossil Ridge High School, not far from here. Alexander Kripke, I'm with the FBI. The last suit didn't fare so well in here, said Rebecca. No, he didn't, said Alex. How did you get here? It's complicated, Rebecca said. She looked unsure of how to explain, or Alex figured it more likely that she didn't know how to explain to a government agent. Forget my credentials, we need to catch this monster, but... A sudden pressure upon Alex's heart interrupted her. She put a hand to her chest and took a deep breath. Are you okay? Rebecca asked. I, I think I need to get out of here, said Alex. Did you go through the elevator too? No, I didn't, she said, giving that sidelong look to the right that was beginning to mean that she didn't want to disclose her secret but I can get you back. Just follow me. Alex retrieved her shoe and glock, and then the two followed the sidewalk to the nearby neighborhood and walked along the curb under the fifty-year-old trees that shaded the street from the orange hue of the northeastern sky. The third house down, Rebecca motioned for Alex to follow. She picked up a planter by the door and plucked the key that was sitting in the water of the planter's bowl. You don't live here, do you? Alex asked. No, but this is my grandmother's house. She unlocked the door to the darkness of the house. Alex followed her down the hall corridor that was full of photos. Alex couldn't make out any of them in the dimness. Rebecca opened the master bedroom and walked into the walk-in closet. Alex stepped in after her. Rebecca licked her lips and pulled the door closed behind them. 
She opened and closed the door three times in a row, held the door closed for a count of five seconds, opened and closed the door three more times, and when she opened the door the following time, a burst of color and air hit them in the face. Rebecca stepped out through the door and into the bedroom where a light was glowing from the bedside table next to the large king-size bed. Alex exited the closet and closed the door behind her. Are we? Alex held up a finger. Back in the real world? Yeah, Rebecca said. Tonight's bingo night at the church around the block, so I think my grandma isn't here. I'm going to need to talk to you down at the station, Alex said, watching the color drain from Rebecca's face. Look, it's not like the movies where we put you on a table and do lab tests on you. I just need to know your part so that I can make an official statement at the end of all of this. Or, she cleared her throat, fabricate one. What happens between you and me going forward is strictly confidential and sequestered to a need to know so that we can solve this case. Okay, Rebecca sighed. Good. I'll have my guy send us a ride and then I'll need you to tell me everything. Get the pieces together now because this will be a big information dump. I need to know what happened to your sister, how you became involved, and what sort of abilities you've come to develop. Do you really need me to tell you everything? Rebecca asked. As the sole survivor of a serial murderer who was murdered into the hundreds, I absolutely need everything. 7. My name is Rebecca Madison Perniak, began Rebecca in the private room of the Fort Worth police station. She sat in the cushioned seat at the table in the glow of the dim desk light as Alex stood in the shadowy back corner of the room. One of the detectives had gotten Rebecca a Fort Worth PD t-shirt and jacket from the uniform closet to wear. Her orange t-shirt with the torn sleeve had been confiscated as evidence. Alex had positioned a mounted Shure SM58 microphone for Rebecca to speak into. Plugged into the interface behind the microphone was a line leading to a matching mic that Alex held in her hand. That's a beautiful name, Rebecca. Tell me about it, Alex said. Madison was my great-great-grandmother's name, and she was a painter. My dad didn't like Madison as a first name. He thought it sounded more like a last name, so they met halfway and made it my middle name. My mom wanted to call me Becca, which she still does, but everyone else calls me Rebecca. I like it better, I guess. You're a talented young woman, said Alex. What sort of hobbies do you have? I love to ice skate and also swim. I'm not very good at either, but I don't know. I think I like doing something skillfully in repetition. It takes my mind away from all the thoughts. Tell me about your favorite vacation or trip abroad, Alex said. Rebecca didn't expect the question, so she had to take a few seconds to rifle through her memories. Probably going to Montana? It's so beautiful there. We got to ride horses at my uncle's ranch, back when there was a we. We'll get to your sister later, but if you were able to go home and everything was normal, what would you be doing right now? Rebecca scoffed. Define normal. She looked to Alex, who pursed her lips to a smile. They both knew these questions weren't important, but Rebecca also knew she had to play ball. I'd probably be doing my homework while watching television and texting my boyfriend. Ex-boyfriend. He'd probably still be my boyfriend if I didn't go crazy. His words, not mine. What's his name? Alex feigned interest. Spencer James. He's been trying to make quarterback for the football team since we were freshmen. Rebecca looked to the side, frowning. She took a deep breath and looked to Alex. Maybe he'll make it now that I'm not holding him back. Alex remained unfazed by any of the dialogue. It was part of the method, part of the technique. I know this seems trivial, but did you two ever have sex? Uh, Rebecca's face went scarlet. Yes, she met Alex's eyes. I don't care if it was your first time, but it is important to clarify that you weren't a virgin. Are you comfortable, Rebecca? Are you ready to begin? What do you mean? 
Rebecca's demeanor tensed. I mean, I'm going to have you tell me from what you think is the beginning how all of this started, and I need every detail. You should speak as much as you can, but I'll probably interrupt to ask questions every now and then. I promised the dinner of your choice at the end of this, but for now, is there anything I can get for you? Like, anything? Rebecca asked. Anything that will make you comfortable spilling the intimate details of your life leading up to the events that occurred this evening. What I'm asking isn't nothing. What you tell us might help us catch one of the most prolific and resourceful serial killers the world has ever heard of. A minute later, Alex stepped out and called Detective Peterson over. He was one of the eight detectives assigned to the case and was eagerly awaiting information Alex might have. Can you get me an A&W root beer float and, like, three nerds ropes? The detective, arms crossed, looked left and right. Uh, yeah, sure, okay. He hurried off and Alex returned to the interview. Your order is being processed, Alex said cordially. Cool. Rebecca leaned forward on her elbows while biting her lower lip. I guess the beginning would be when I was eight years old. My sister and I used to go to daycare every day. She was fine, but I got picked on a lot. I was always getting into fights with the other kids. I remember hiding in one of the overturned painted barrels of the playground and reciting Bible verses while I prayed that the other kids wouldn't find me. One day I was running away from them. I thought I was going to hide in the hall closet of the daycare when I was suddenly home. I don't know how I did it or why, but my parents came home later with Shauna, panicking. I was confused. They were confused. Shauna was doubly confused because she saw me five minutes before I disappeared. I couldn't get back to the daycare after I got home. I didn't know what happened and nothing could explain it. I just went home because I really didn't want to be at the daycare anymore. And your parents could verify this happened? Alex asked. Absolutely, said Rebecca. But they still don't know why that happened. I figured it out a few years later. I must have been 12 or 13. I remember having a sleepover at my friend Allison's house. She had fallen asleep while the two of us watched movies. I remember looking at her closet door and being sure that it didn't lead to her closet. I knew if I went through it would take me somewhere else. It was stupid because Allison and I had been friends for years. I'd been in her closet dozens of times, but this time I was certain it would take me to not just anywhere, but to a hotel in Switzerland. I was very sure of the exact place this doorway would take me. It was like a dream when I opened the door and saw the hotel lobby. I went through and the door shut behind me. When I opened it again, it was just the lobby maintenance closet. I called my parents to let them know what happened again. They were flabbergasted, but at least I was somewhere. The same wouldn't be true for my sister four years later. They had to fly all the way to Zurich just to give me my passport so I could fly back. I'm sure that confused the hell out of the customs officers, Alex said. Yep, said Rebecca. We had to pretend like they forgot to stamp my passport when we left, and I had to act like my ticket and luggage got lost. It was a shady situation, internationally. So, I'm assuming you got a handle on this ability of yours, Alex asked. Yeah, that's where things get strange, said Rebecca. It involves my best friend Lizzie Jacobs. And where can we find her, Alex asked. No clue, Rebecca said, causing Alex to raise an eyebrow. I've never met her, and she didn't trust me enough to tell me which country she lived in. She spoke English, I'm assuming, Alex said. She spoke English, but other than her full name, which she let slip when we were little, she didn't tell me very much about herself. Which website did you use to contact her? We may need her help later. It wasn't a website, Rebecca said. We spoke psychically. You mean telepathically? Alex inquired. Sure. And when did this communication begin? Probably when I was maybe seven or eight years old. I was bored in church and thought I heard someone talking to me. 
I thought there was someone in the room, but there was no Lizzie at my church. I learned pretty quickly that Lizzie wasn't someone who lived within close range of me at all. Not sure why or how we connected, but once we did, we were friends for life. Not judging, but have you ever considered the idea that perhaps Lizzie doesn't exist? Alex asked. No, she exists, and I'm not crazy. She sent me messages through burner emails before, and contacted me through other people's social media profiles. We have a strange relationship, honestly. Mm-hmm. But she knew how to help you find these particular doorways? She taught me how to hack certain doorways, said Rebecca. They're all different. Lizzie said she had already figured out the doorway trick, but said to stay away from the red doors. The red doors lead to the dark place, and there are things and people in there that can be dangerous. Time in that place didn't exist, but still moved outside. If you can find Lizzie, Miss Kripke, you'll find the actual first survivor of Marvin Baxter. She used to live in Marvin's house. You're not talking about one of William Barry's sisters from Swanson's Landing. Rebecca shook her head. I read about them after I learned who Marvin was. What happened with Lizzie is a whole different incident. So Lizzie taught you to use certain doorways, continued Alex. Explain more about how this works. It's simple, really. There are doors everywhere. Most of them don't do anything, but some are linked to memories. If a person goes on an important trip to Italy and has a memorable time, when they get back, a door from their house might lead to one of the hotels they stayed in because for a short period of time that hotel was their home, like the home of their house. I think I understand, Alex said. Everybody has a little magic in them, said Rebecca. That's what Lizzie used to say. And they leave a little light or darkness everywhere they go. And the red door? Alex asked. It works in reverse. I found red doors in places where domestic violence was an issue. Oddly enough, you'll find red doors on the top executive floors of corporate buildings, too. And they all lead to the same place? Alex glared at the floor and thought. There's something collective about the dark unconscious. People who are a few good highs away from death sometimes find themselves wandering around that place. Anger has power. It's like, if you think about hate, you can do almost anything. Maybe not hate, but revenge. Do you feel like telling me what happened to your sister? Not really, but I don't want to go through all this again, so I'll tell you, said Rebecca. She moved her attention to nowhere in particular as she gathered her thoughts. Her expression softened in a way as her lips parted. He found us. Found me. Marvin knows about the doorway trick as well. Lizzie and I think he can go to that place whenever he wants. He's like a ghost in real life. No one looks at him because he's spent so much time in that other world. They just look right over him. He's not impressive. He's not scary. He's just another loser here. But he doesn't just live on the dark side. He's conquered it. The first time I saw Marvin Baxter was a week after I curiously went through my first red door. I was 12 years old. Lizzie had told me dozens of times not to go through, but I was too curious. There was that red door at the back of my grandmother's house, the one we went through to come back. I saw it every time I visited there and had to use the restroom in the master bedroom. I was only inside for maybe two minutes. He was a wolf smelling blood. He didn't come for us right away. He was like a hunter, migrating with his prey to a new location. Girls would vanish from different areas of the Metroplex randomly, but he knew I was different. He knew I knew how to go through. It intrigued him, the way the hunter from before sees a stag with a big set of antlers. But you said you saw him a week after going through, said Alex. When did this first encounter occur? The grocery store. It was almost exactly a week from when I went through and came back. That place has an odd smell. Remember that odd smell? I do, Alex said. It smells like meat a few hours before it goes rotten, said Rebecca. 
You get a little whiff of that smell when you drive by an animal that was recently hit on the side of the highway. Go on, Alex nodded. He was there in the grocery store when I, Shauna, and my mom were getting food after a big storm. It was one of those afternoons that you remember because a lot of weird things happen. The battery to our van had died because it was so cold, so our neighbor had to let us borrow his truck because he was too sick to go out. Then Shauna started feeling sick. Anyway, we were at the store when I smelled that smell. When I looked down the aisle, there he was. His clothes were dirty, and he had a beard. We looked at one another. You know how you can look at someone and know you should probably find somewhere else to be, and you hope that you can not be where you are very quickly? Yeah, said Alex. It was only a feeling every woman on the planet had experienced at some time or another. It was like that, and then he saw Shauna. Darkness entered Rebecca's eyes. I could feel the way he looked at her. It was disgusting. And you didn't see him again after that? Nope. Seeing him in the store was like a long moment that I remembered later. The next time I saw him was right before Shauna died, Rebecca said, tapering off. Alex gave her a few seconds to collect her thoughts on the matter. It was probably four years later, just last month for me. I was... There was a knock on the door that startled the two of them. An unreasonable fury filled Alex to have the interview interrupted before she realized that it was Rebecca's order. Rebecca picked up where she left off with a nerd's rope peeled like a banana in one hand and a large size A&W root beer float in the other. So this season, I was one of the top runners for my track class. Rebecca ripped a few inches off the nerd's rope and crunched it. I saw that same creeper at one of my track meets. He looked almost exactly how I remembered him from the grocery store. Could even have been wearing the same clothes. The crazy part is how no one else seemed to notice he was there. I remember seeing him in the stands at the end of one of my runs. It was like people should have known he was dangerous, but everyone was bunched up together on the bleachers with him right in the middle. He was grinning like a pervert, watching all the high school girls. He didn't look much older than a high school student, so I guess that's why people left him alone. A girl disappeared from the middle school a few blocks away that night. We heard about it, but you hear about a missing kid and you just think there was probably a custody battle or something. Unless you actually go and look for updates on that specific news, you might never know that they never found the girl, or that she was only the latest in a string of disappearances in North Texas. Now, though, I'm certain it was him. My sister and I were at the mall when she disappeared. Rebecca had rested the nerd's rope on her knee. She stared straight ahead as Alex patiently allowed her to continue. You know how I said that that other place has strange laws, odd physics? I think Marvin was part of that place for so long that he both adapted and channeled it with him. He can distort reality here by manipulating the world there. Explain, Alex said. Do you know how easy it is to hack a mind that isn't paying attention? Rebecca asked. Hack like computer hack? Alex asked. Yeah, said Rebecca. Different people have stronger minds than others. Like, I can see a lot, but I don't see nearly as much as Lizzie. She can hear people thinking. She can pick things up with her brain like magic, but she has to really focus. There are other mind powers that Marvin has figured out. One of them is hacking a brain. While we were walking through the mall, Shauna kept saying that she thought someone was following us. She said it was a guy in a cowboy hat. I thought she was being silly, but then I kept seeing this guy with this kind of red stubble beard and this black shirt and jeans, and those distinctly black alligator skin cowboy boots. I just kept seeing him in the same place as we were. It was impossible to deny that he was following us. He wasn't Marvin, though. That much I'm certain of. This was a different guy, but he had that same nearly rotten meat stench. His eyes looked weirdly dark as well. We were about to leave the mall when I told Shauna I had to go to the restroom. 
I remember there being almost no one near that entrance to the mall. It was a weekday afternoon, so a lot of people were still in school or work. Shauna waited outside while I went. When I came back outside, she was gone. But that prick in the cowboy hat suddenly drove by the entrance in a big white truck. I never saw Shauna alive again after that. And you think Marvin has something to do with it? Alex asked. I know he took her, Rebecca said lowly. I found her body on the other side. Alex had a lot. Most of it was a bit much. She would have to do a lot of work to verify much of what Rebecca was telling her. So, what happened next? How did you figure out that Marvin was behind all of this? Lizzie told me. She deduced that it was because I went in, even for just two minutes. It shined my location within that reality like a beacon. Why, she had said never to go through. She said she wouldn't go after Shauna, but she taught me how to relax and control my mind so that I might have a chance. I think something terrible happened to her in there. Tell me about what happened tonight. Rebecca took a deep breath. It took me a month to gather the courage to go through. I wanted to bring a gun. I even had a guy friend from the football team, one of my ex's friends. He said he'd teach me to shoot. I told him I was worried someone had been following me and asked what I should do if I want to learn. I think, because I was spending time with him, my boyfriend thought, I don't know. She massaged her forehead and closed her eyes. We're almost done, Rebecca, said Alex. You've done wonderfully tonight. Finish that candy in your story, then we'll go grab some food at IHOP. It started with my mom texting me that she would pick me up this afternoon. My grandmother texted her that the road to her house was closed off because of all the crime scene vehicles at the park. My grandmother, being the nosy neighbor that she is, went and asked one of the police officers what happened. He told her there were at least 20 dead girls at the park. Mom wanted me to go with her so we could find out if one of the bodies matched my sister. We went over there, but the police officer just waved us away. He said they'd contact us if one of the bodies matched Shauna's description. That's when I got angry. I didn't get scared like my mom. I got angry like my dad. It was him, that creepy monster of a person. He was taunting us, the victims. He was saying, I can do whatever I want, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. But I knew a secret. I knew where the monster was hiding, and I knew how to get there. I told Lizzie I was going, and I said I'd be armed. Lizzie said guns won't work on the other side, at least not guns from this world. That explains why mine didn't fire, Alex said. Rebecca nodded, so that idea was out the window. Lizzie said I need to get something from that world to kill him, but that's assuming it's even possible. I think... I think Lizzie might have fought him on that side, and I think she might have lost. That's why she won't go back. But if even she couldn't defeat him, then how much of a chance did I stand? I went in anyway. Lizzie taught me how to use my mind power as a kind of wave. She said to use it as a last resort, just to get away. I found him at the park, and he did that weird claw thing. I grabbed a tire lug nut wrench from the janitor's closet at school. I didn't have much of a plan other than that. He was about to murder another girl in the park, but I freed her and she took off. Marvin found me and I tried to attack him. He overpowered me, I ran, and then you showed up. You said you found your sister on the other side? Alex inquired. Yeah, he had lots of girls laid out on the sidewalk on the other side of the park center from where we were. Rebecca sighed, looking down. I found her with like eight other girls. Her heart was gone. She looks so unhappy. That's when the tears began to flow. Alex gave her a box of tissue. That's enough for today, she said. I have one more request and that's it. I hope it's easy. What's that? Rebecca wiped the drops from her cheeks and slumped her head down so that her chin was resting on her chest. I need you to contact Lizzie.
Does this mean that I need to rewrite and release my second novel with Lizzie Jacobs? Ugh, more work to do. Anyway, still chipping away at all my projects. I hope everyone's having a decent year. I have a few more episodes to record and finish out for the season before my neighbors break out their pool for the summer. I've appealed to my financial overseer for a soundproof audio recording booth, but I haven't heard back yet. Just a quick side note, the majority of this podcast's movement is organic and word of mouth. If you enjoy these stories, think about someone else you know who might enjoy them, and let them know this exists. Also, do me a solid and leave a good review on whatever podcast service you're using. Every little bit helps. Thanks, have a good month. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was written, read, and produced for you by Benjamin Allen. Please give us a good review and subscribe for more stories each month. If you'd like to support us, go purchase one of my audiobooks from Audible, or you can find the donations page on our website. Visit ekpublishingmedia.com for more information. That's ekpublishingmedia.com. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media production 2021.